0: Thank you, Jordan. And thank you all for saying that loud enough to hear. That's great. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of Micah, chapter 2, we are going to look at the massive segment of two verses today. We're going to meditate on that. I've been reading a lot of sermons from Charles Spurgeon, and I've been amazed that he could take one verse and what would take me 30 to 45 minutes to read, he manages to preach one verse full of content. And so I'm not going to try to be like Spurgeon, and I'm not going to try to take 30 to 45 minutes. Hopefully it will be a little bit less. Um, but I thought we'd do that today around the table because of the subject, because of how this, these verses um, kind of play in with what Micah is to doing um, and now, i got to tell you, there's, there's been a few times in my life when I have felt deep, deep regret, deep remorse. And I wish it would be actually more often than not. But there, there have been a few times when I have transgressed someone, when I have sinned against them, when I've done something that I knew offended them, and it weighed on me deeply. And one of those times happened in high school. I was... Uh, the My baseball coach, Danielle's volleyball coach, or basketball coach, rather, um, and he was our Bible coach. He ended up being the man that, one of the guys who married us uh, at our wedding, a guy named Dave Errol, he also drove the bus for our school. And so he would drive down the same road that I would drive down once I got my license. Well, there was one day, and this is going to seem, you're going to look at this thing, Joel, you are too sensitive there was one day I was driving, and I happened to end up behind him on, on my way to school. And we were getting ready. I knew we had to make a left-hand turn soon, so I zipped around with my little 1988 blue egg car, the Mercury Tracer. I zipped past the bus, and then he pulled in behind me, and we, I went to the parking lot, and he dropped off the kids that were on the bus. And, and I didn't think anything about it. Well, as I was walking down from my car, and he was he was getting out of the bus and parking it and doing all the things that bus drivers do, he scolded me. He said, "Joel, the way you were driving was unsafe. I had my hand out the window to alert you that I needed to turn. Yeah, my blinker didn't work, but you should have you should have paid more careful attention." He was very stern in that, and I, and I respected Mr. Errol a lot, I, and I still do. He was just But it weighed on me. I was like, oh, man. And I needed to do something about my guilt. And so I wrote him a note. Because sometimes, I mean, sometimes that personal confrontation, I just wouldn't get the words out right. So I wrote him a note. I said, hey, Mr. Errol, I am so sorry. I messed up. You're right. I should have been more careful. Please forgive me. And then there's that waiting game. Have you ever been in that spot when you know you've done something wrong? And I realize driving around a bus, you think, Joel, that's ridiculous. I could tell you other stories about other people that I've offended, but I figured that would be a good, safe one. Um, But there's that waiting game, that time between knowing, "I, I, I know I've transgressed and I know I am at your mercy for forgiveness. When will forgiveness come? Will forgiveness come? And there's that waiting game. And I don't know if that's what it was like for the people of Israel and Judah as they had listened to uh, Micah share his message. Of course, over the last two weeks, we've looked at Micah's chapters, chapters 1 and 2. And, and really, this, all of chapter 1 and 2 encapsulates what, we, what seems like one sermon for Micah. He begins with, and we kind of know this throughout his book, because he says, "Hear, listen, pay attention. And he says that a couple times, marking different sermons and there's different subjects And so I don't know if they were feeling unworthy, if they were feeling convicted about their idolatry, as we saw in chapter 1. I don't know if they were feeling guilty about their covetousness. But Micah does something very interesting, I think, at the very end of his sermon. Because he doesn't necessarily wait for them to show regret. He doesn't necessarily wait for them to to show remorse because ultimately God is going to discipline his people. He has told them there will be an invasion coming and you will go off into exile. And he's going to tell them that more and more over the next few chapters. And so in many ways, it's kind of depressing. But here at the end of chapter 2, Micah does something very interesting. And I think what he does is he gives us a bit of hope. In fact, David Pryor, one of the... uh, Commentators that I looked at said these two verses mark the end of the first cycle or first sermon in the book, and they offer a glimmer of light at the end of a dark tunnel. In many ways, these verses offer the glimmer of hope about the future for Israel and Judah, especially the future for Judah. It offers a glimmer of hope about a leader who would come. And and the presence of this future hope, the presence of this future leader seems to indicate that even though the people of Israel had transgressed God, they had offended him greatly. He had not given up on them. He he was not going to abandon them. They had rebelled. They had been faithless. They had sinned grievously. But God is faithful, and he was going to pursue with them. And so if you want to follow along in your outline, there's a couple blanks here. But regarding this future leader, it seems like Micah is telling us that there is a shepherd king who is coming. There is someone who is coming who acts like a shepherd and acts like a king. As we read a few moments ago in verse 12 um, in the ESV, it says, "'I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather you, the remnant of Israel.'" How is this future leader, how is he, could we give him that title, a shepherd king? One of the things that Micah does is he describes the people of Israel, the people of Judah, as sheep. In in the second half of verse 12, he says, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture. There is something that God will do, that that this leader will do. As he assembles them and he, as he draws them back together. But think about what is it that a shepherd does? What is it that a shepherd, what is the role that a shepherd plays in the lives of sheep? You know, in the Middle East, they would lead their flocks around. If you ever go to the Middle East, you'll see these shepherds walking around. They've got these big, tall staffs so they can kind of keep the sheep in line. And they're going to lead them out front. Or maybe they'll push them from behind. They'll lead them from back there, leading them to places where they can find Good pasture, where they can find good food, where they can find still waters. They feed the flock, they protect the flocks, they look out for the, the, the uh, animals that might be on the horizon, those, those animals that w- would want to eat and take the sheep. But they also protect them by providing healthful environments, and they provide shelter, they provide rest, they provide security. So this future leader, as he he talks about he says, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture. He's going to do something as a shepherd to this people. But there's another sense in which Micah refers to this future person, this future leader as a king. Not only is he a shepherd, but he is a, a king. If you look down in verse 13. The end of verse, thing, verse 13, it says, Their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. Now think about this. What does a king do that is maybe a little bit different than a shepherd? A king would lead his people. A king should lead by example. In fact, the people generally should resemble what the king would model. But beyond that, a king governs his people. A king establishes laws and expectations. A king would establish standards for the people. He sets out rules and guidelines so that the nation over which he is governing is able to be safe and fair and just. He also protects. One of the greatest responsibilities that a federal government, that a head of state has, is to protect the nation over which they are given. And so it seems like The the nations of Israel and Judah would need both of these. They would need a shepherd to restore them and a king to reign over them and both to protect them. And so Micah seems to note that there will be a leader coming. This shepherd king is coming and he's coming to gather his people. He's coming to gather his people. And we see this in the beginning part of verse 12. Micah has been telling the people that there will be judgment. There will be justice for their injustice. There will also be hope. He's communicating that all is not lost in the coming judgment. Look again at chapter, 12, chapter 2, verse 12. And again, sorry, we don't have the verses on the slide, so you have to look in your copy of God's word. He says, Surely, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. So here's the thing. They have a little bit of hope, even though one day they're going to be taken away. And we know that this happened about 150 years um, after Micah prophesied this for the southern kingdom. And it happened during his lifetime for the northern kingdom. They would be taken off. But there's this hope. There's a sense of he will gather them back. But do you notice what he said? Look, look at the verse, verse line in your, in your uh, copy of God's Word. It says, I will surely assemble All of you, O Jacob, and I will gather the remnant of Israel. Well, which is it? Is it all of you? Or is it the remnant? David Pryor, in his commentary, says, The very notion of a remnant suggests survival by the skin of one's teeth for a small minority. The bulk of the nation will not survive. He, says, he continues, there is an anomaly in this first phrase, all of you, which initially suggests complete rescue and restoration, but then the phrase, the remnant of Israel, kills off any false optimism, making it plain that all means the entire remnant, not one of the remnant will be lost, but there will be many in Israel and Judah who will be lost. In Israel and Judah, in that day, there were some people, I think, who had a genuine faith, people who were, who were faithful to the Lord, people who didn't fall into the idolatry that, that much of the nation did, people that didn't fall into the covetousness that some people were doing and the injustice that they were acting on. But there were also those who were dabbling. They would dabble in the faith. They would dabble in the sacrifices. They, they would go to the synagogue on Sabbath, and they'd do all the sacrifices the way. They, and then Sunday through Friday, they would act whatever the way they wanted to. They would go to the other idols. They would go to the Asherah pole. They would commit cult prostitution in front of false gods as they committed idolatry against God. They were trying to play play it safe by being both with God and with these other false gods. They would dabble in God's morality and ethics, and then they would also dabble in the pagan morality and ethics of their day. They were trying to have it both ways. And God wasn't going to have any of that. And I think it's important for us to recognize that not everyone who thinks they are a Christian really is a Christian. Jesus even said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, 21. There are some of us who've grown up in the church and we might think, I've known this all my life. I've just always been a believer. And there are truly some people who are saved, who are elect, who are called out, who can't remember the day, or the hour, or the time when they didn't believe. But then there are others who are placing their hope in something else not in what Jesus purchased for them, but in maybe it's church attendance. If I just show up enough, God will be happy with me. Maybe it's in service. Maybe if I do enough good deeds to help out this person, then maybe God will overlook, oh, my little sinfulness. Maybe it's in comparative goodness. I'm not as bad as that person. And yet, have you ever noticed that we want to compare ourselves with people like Hitler? Hitler. Oh, yeah, man, Hitler was way, I'm way better than Hitler. If Hitler's going to hell, then I must not be. The challenge is, (laughs) it's a false comparison. Our comparison needs to be against God. How good are we compared to the good and holy God? Even as we sang this morning. Or maybe some of us are riding the coattails of our parents' faith hoping that what I picked up from them will be enough to I'll just coast on into heaven. My parents believed that's good enough for me. There, will, there was only going to be a remnant of Israel and Judah. There will be a people of Jesus, people who are called Christians, people who are called by Jesus' name, who will see that day. They are the remnant. The question is, are all of us a part of that? What are we depending on? But then secondly, Micah says, not only will the shepherd king come to gather or to regather his people, but he will also come to establish his people. In the second half of verse 12, he says, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. You see, throughout history, God has done certain things to call people out, to set people aside as his people. If you think about it, way back in the beginning, not all, well, somewhat back if we go all the way to the Garden of Eden, but when God called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to follow me. And he gave them a sign. He gave Abraham a sign of the covenant. He said, this is going to mark all of my people as separate. He promised him land. He promised him descendants. And then as the people of Israel found themselves in Egypt and slavery, and then God brought them out, he set up a, a whole new set of laws and standards. Because, he, frankly, he didn't give Abraham very many laws and guidelines. He just said circumcision, and I'm going to promise you all this land. You guys are all my people if you'll do this, but here's the land. And then once the exodus happened as at Mount Sinai, God gave moral, legal, and religious codes to the people of Israel. He told them, hey, you're going to be separate from all the other nations. You're going to serve one God instead of multitudes of gods. In fact, the Egyptians, they had 10 or more gods, and that's what the 10 plagues were all about, countering their gods. He said, no, you're going to serve one God. You will have no other gods before me. He talked about how they should relate to one another. In, in, if, you, if we were to read the Torah, if we were to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, especially Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, we would see the way that God wanted his people to relate to one another, how they were to, to, to act with justice toward one another. He talked about the value of life. He talked about retribution, about standards of justice talked about regular religious practices and patterns, how they needed to rest, how they should come together to worship. And then in the promised land, he established them, giving them boundaries, physical boundaries. He said, this this is the land in which I have promised to Abraham, and now this is your land. He set them. So he not only set them by certain standards, he not only set them apart by um, certain expectations, but he also then gave them land to set them apart as a people for himself. And in so many of these areas, the people broke down these established barriers. They were no longer identified as God's people. They had borrowed so many of the customs and habits of the people around them that they could not really be distinguished. And so here, after the exile, God promises that he will reestablish his people under this shepherd king. But I do wonder for us, as Christians, how often have we compromised the established boundaries that God has set for us? Do our values, our habits, our patterns so resemble the world around us that we are indistinguishable from others? I mean, the fact that we're here should distinguish us some part, but is this all that there is to being a Christian, showing up, getting up a little On a Sunday morning Are we distinguishable In our speech Is our language salty Just like the rest of the world Or is our how we talk about other people Just as gossipy as everyone else Or our money management Or how we treat our family members How we treat others Can people see Christ In the way that we act How we spend our time in our entertainment as i've been thinking about this i've been thinking about you know, i listen to a lot of podcasts and one of the uh, several of the podcasts have brought up that over the years especially over the last several decades generally the church in north america has been in decline People have just stopped seeing the value of participating in a congregation, participating in a local church. And so a lot of churches have taken different responses to how to deal with that. What do we do to make sure that the next generation continues to believe? And there's a whole group of churches that has decided to say, well, all of these standards, they were more culturally relevant back in the day, but they're not culturally relevant now. And so the biblical moral codes... Let's not follow those. So a lot of churches have been saying, yeah, you can love whoever you want. You can do this. You can talk that way. We're not going to worry about those things. God's not worried about that. So they lower the bar. And, I, and several people have observed that in those churches, one of the things that people are finding is the people outside the church and people inside the church are so indistinguishable that the people outside of the church think there's no reason for me to go. If they believe everything I believe, then why go? If there's no difference in what they're preaching, if the word that they preach is, mm, they're they're whitewashing a lot of it, why go? Are we distinguishable? Are we set apart as his people? But then Micah continues his hopeful conclusion, and I feel like this is not quite as hope-filled as it should be but I do think it has some important ramifications for us. Micah continues his hopeful conclusion about the shepherd king by stating that he is coming to lead his people. And I think this is where the hope really begins to set in. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, He who opens the breach goes before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, here's the thing. When Micah wrote this, as I said, all the people of Israel and Judah were there in their own land. And in in a few years, the northern kingdom would be sent off to Babylon. Is that right? No, Assyria. Assyria Assyria's going to take the northern kingdom. About 150 years later, the southern kingdom was going to be taken off by Babylon. Here's the thing, though. Roughly 200 years after Micah's prophecy, Ezra... The scribe notes the way that God worked in the heart of a foreign king to return the remnant of, as of, uh, of Israel, the remnant from exile. Ezra chapter 1, you can read this later, but Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Ezra writes, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So, again, keep in mind, this is roughly 200 years after Micah's prophesying this. I know he referenced Jeremiah, but, but hear me out. He's your king? Your Persia? Yep. Thus says Cyrus, king of Bobby. I'm sorry, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever, among, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts. Besides the free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, now think about that. If you have your copy of, of Micah open, look at what he says. He who opens the breach goes before them. They will break through and pass the gate going out by it. The king passes on before them the Lord at their head. And notice, this isn't necessarily someone, a person of Israel who is going out. But God himself is making a way for the people of Israel to return. It was God who inspired Cyrus, Bobby's king, the king of Persia, to let the people go. It was God who moved in that king's heart. God was paving a way. God is that shepherd king. He broke through the wall of exile in a foreign land, and he made, made a way for the people to pass by the gate of that foreign city in order to be restored. You see, as the people returned, there were were governors and there were rulers, but there was never again a king in Israel. And that is there are no kings until we get to Jesus. Because ultimately, I think that we have to recognize that the shepherd king is Jesus. Jesus. The shepherd king is Jesus. He, when you look at the life and ministry of what Jesus did, he, he came and he began to preach. and began to preach the good news and tell people about the kingdom of God. And he was drawing people to him. He was gathering a remnant of people who would believe in him, of people that is not based on ethnicity. You didn't only have to be Jewish. Now, now it was open for Everybody. You didn't only have to speak Hebrew or Greek. It was all based on a creed. It wasn't geographically bound. It wasn't politically bound. It was based on belief in Him and Him alone. And each Sunday, Jesus' people gather proclaiming our allegiance to Him. And one day, He will come again. And He will gather all His people together and He will reign and we will reign with Him if we are His. But not only will he gather his people, he is establishing and setting apart a people unto himself, a people that are unique and different, a people that are holy, a people that should act with justice, a people that should act with righteousness, a people that should act with generosity and graciousness and mercy and love. And then, as any good shepherd and any good king, he leads us in how We should live now and leads us toward the promises of eternal life. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, when he was buried in that tomb and he rose from the grave, he brought us hope. He not only brought us victory over sin and death, he brought us hope for the resurrection that is to come. Because we don't have to fear the grave. We don't have to fear what will happen to us after we die. There will come a day when all of us will breathe our last breaths. But that will not be the end of our lives. For some of us, we will be resurrected and reunited with our Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done. And why would the shepherd king do this for us? Why would he go to all the trouble that he did? Why would Jesus endure the pain and the brutality of his crucifixion? And I think there's two primary reasons. One is... For the glory of God. You see, when Micah talks about the fact that he is opening the breach, he's paving the way, it is God and God alone who gets the glory. Even Cyrus said, God gave me this vision. It is God who is doing this. Jesus Christ coming down from heaven, from eternity, in to be like us, demonstrates that he gets the glory for our salvation. But he didn't just do that because he's some egomaniac. He needs, he gets the glory because he deserves it. He is the one being in all of eternity that should be glorified, that should be honored. But he also, because he is, all, he is holy and just, he gets glory. But yet he acted out of love. He acted out of love. John 3:16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's coming to, out of love to pay for our sin, the sin, the death that we all deserved. And so I need to ask you, have you trusted in the finished work of our shepherd king? Have you trusted in what he's done? Have you responded to his holiness and justice? And love. Because frankly, my hope is that for all of us, when we would look at the holiness of God and when we would look at our lives, we wouldn't see that, oh, we're just a little off. That we too, like I did with my Bible teacher and coach, will want to write a letter saying, oh, I am so unworthy. I am so sorry. My sin is such a burden. And yet out of love, you paid for it. So, Jesus, thank you. But I also need to ask you a question. Are you living? If you have received his salvation, are you living as a faithful member of his flock? Are you faithfully following him? If people were to open up your brain and see your thoughts, they would listen in like your phone does. Have you ever noticed your phone tends to bring ads that tie in with your conversation? They were to listen in. What are the ads that people would be laying on your phone, on your mind? Are you faithful, and even even when no one's around? Am I faithful, even when no one's around? But I think there's one one last question, and that is: Do we, do you and I, long for His return? We look forward to that day when Jesus Christ is going to come back in physical form and lead and reign and rule on this earth. Their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. I hope that we long for the day of his coming. I hope that we do. But one of the things we have to recognize that in order for Jesus to have a second coming, he had to have a first coming. And in his first coming, he came weak. He came frail. He took on human flesh, just like you and me, in order to be like us. And yet the difference was he lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live. And even as we, today, we're gonna do with the Lord's Supper, we... Consider the fact that the life that he lived, or rather the death that he died, was undeserved. The death that he died, he died on our behalf. So I want to invite the elders to come as we uh, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, as we pre- prepare to remember.